0: All right, so we're now in week three of our study through the book of 1 Peter. Um, we're about a third of the way through, and so we're just moving, moving right along. Um, the last two weeks, we'll walk through uh, chapter 1, verse 13, to chapter 2, verse 3. And this morning, I'll pick up in verse 4, chapter 2. All right, so let's get right into it. Let me have someone read 1 um, Peter 2, verses 1 to 5. And then someone else, verses 5 to 10. So who wants First Peter 2? Okay, thank you, Yvette. And then Norm, you can read. Um, 6 to 10 and then 1 to 5. Yep. <clears throat>
1: Value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and the rock of defence. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are the chosen race, a royal nation, holy nation, people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellency of the all right.
0: Thank you, vet. Thank you, Norm. <clears throat> so we're going to um, break it up as you see in your handout. We're going to go through verses four and five together, um, six to eight together, and then nine and then ten. So. First, back up to verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. <clears throat> so, according to verse 4, um, the Lord, of verse 3 Look back at verse three. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, according to verse four, um, that Lord is clearly Jesus Christ. Okay, that's interesting because in Psalm 34:8, "Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good," which he pulls from, the Lord is the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah, the existing one. Uh, so Peter's use of the Old Testament here is important, uh, christologically or in considering Christ because it shows that what's true of Yahweh is also true of Jesus the Christ. All right? So we'll start there, which is huge for us to see and understand. The verses we'll be looking at this morning have a lot of um, Old Testament references and allusions. Um, And we see the first when when Peter here identifies Jesus as the living stone. He identifies him as the living stone in verse 4. This living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious. Uh, so what does it mean that Jesus is a living stone rejected by men? Well, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that Peter probably drew this from Psalm 118.22, where the stone rejected by the builders becomes the cornerstone. And Psalm 18, uh, verse 14 on down, sort of has this strong theme of the Messiah or the salvation of the Lord. Um, In Acts 4.11, Peter referred to the same verse and connected it to Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation. Uh, But back in 1 Peter here in verse 7, or back in 1 Peter verse 7, you see that the cornerstone of the building was rejected by the builders. We'll get to that in a sec. We're not there yet. But I mentioned that to point out that Jesus was actually rejected by human beings. And the climax of Jesus' rejection was the crucifixion. In Acts 4, 10 to 11, which I just mentioned, Peter also references Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 118. Let I me mean, have someone read these verses here, verse ten eleven, 11, Acts 4. Let it be known to all of you around and to all the people of Israel <laughs> that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The, builder, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Okay. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate it. So here it seems that the rejection of Jesus as the cornerstone was fulfilled in his death. On the other end, Christ's vindication or being honored by God occurred at his resurrection. So this imagery of the cornerstone being rejected seems to lay out this idea of sort of two building projects, one uh, being built by men and the other being built by God. Uh, The human builders sort of, they look at Christ and they inspect him and they see him as useless, right? Peter's readers uh, can no doubt relate to this experience of rejection. Just as they look at Christ, see him useless and sort of cast him aside, so his his readers would have felt the same way because they were rejected in society as useless, especially at this time of this this persecution. Um, And we know that feeling. At times, we do feel rejected in the world or cast aside as useless or looked over or inadequate or hopeless or impractical. We get that a lot as Christians. Uh, Well, we are in good company. We are in the company of these saints, and we are in the company of Christ himself, and the servant is not greater than his master. Uh, Luke 6 even says, you are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So again, we are in good company, and we are favored by the Lord. All right. So keep that in mind. Back to 1 Peter 2 here. Um, at the end of verse 4, there you see that <clears throat> in God's sight, Jesus was not rejected, uh, but he was chosen and he was honored. All right In God's sight, he was chosen and honored. He was held in honor. He was prized. He was precious. So the life of Christ becomes a pattern for Christians. And as I mentioned, we too are despised by many. We are um, rejected, we are cast aside, but by God we are chosen and honored in his sight and we are destined for vindication after suffering. All right, so we stand in the long line of saints in the same way there's the cross and then the crown. So encouragement there is endure, <laughs> endure, brother, sister, endure, stand firm in the faith for God himself will vindicate us and how all Filled, that vindication will be. When Christ returns, nothing compares to that. <clears throat> All right, let's jump down to, to verse 5. So Peter now shows this comparison between Christ as the living stone and believers as living stones. Living stones because of their faith in the living one, the resurrected Christ. So nowhere else in the New, in the New Testament are believers called living stones though they are described as God's temple or house. i want to look at a few passages that show that. So in Colossians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then let me have some read Ephesians 2 here. So then you're no
1: longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for
0: God by the Spirit. Okay, so you see this terminology, this building, this structure, building on the foundation. Christ being himself the cornerstone, the whole structure joined together into a holy temple of the Lord being built together into a living place. So you see this terminology, this living stone sort of terminology here. And then Romans, actually, that's next. We'll we'll get to that in a sec. So this this terminology of this house is important to know, because you see that throughout 1 Peter and, and other places. And Peter here alludes to a temple which is commonly called a house in the Old Testament and is also designated as a house in the New Testament. So the verb for build here in verse 5, the verb for build is when when combined with house in the Old Testament uh, or the Greek Old Testament, it's usually referring to the temple. So when you see build and when you see house together in the Septuagint, it's usually a reference to the temple. And the house is a spiritual house because it is animated or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So the physical temple of God points toward and anticipates God's new temple. And what is that new temple? It's the church. It's the church. And the purpose of believers, which are the living stones of the spiritual house, is that they function as holy priests, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. All right, so all of God's people Now, not just the tribe of Levi are priests, right? This verse has a corporate tone, uh, which which is consistent with verse 9, which says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So as a priesthood, all believers have direct access to God through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just as the Old Testament priest's duty was to offer sacrifices, We are, we as God's new priesthood offer spiritual sacrifices. And these sacrifices are offered by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why they're spiritual sacrifices. Okay, so I guess we haven't really answered the question of what is the spiritual sacrifice, okay? Um, It's interesting that in verse 2, in chapter 2 and verse 9, the priestly calling of the church seems to be um, evangelistic, a praising of God's name so that the world would join in worshiping him. So that's, that's interesting, maybe, to you. Um, still, although we see that, we have this in our minds. So sacrifices, it's, it's different now. We don't come and gather in a temple and have a priest uh, slaughter a bull, right, or a goat or some other animal. Um, the sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, seem to be the proclamation, which we'll talk about more, Um, But it's not limited to that as well. Um, It's not one specific item. Everything that is pleasing to God is likely included here. Um, And I get that from Romans 12.1 and Hebrews. Romans 12.1 behind me here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship right? And then Hebrews 13, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So again, everything you do that is pleasing to God should be considered as a spiritual sacrifice, uh, that may be less complicated than we we thought it would be. Um, any thoughts on that before we jump to the next couple verses here? That's really
1: helpful. Uh, as far as <coughs> when you think about worship, when we think about you know us as being a temple, like you said, um, offering spiritual sacrifices. Yeah. You know, you see that theme throughout the Old Testament, and now what it looks like in the New Testament, right. which is his people, uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling. Them as opposed to just the temple. Right. God's presence in the temple. Now it's in us. Right. And then, uh, yep. and then this is the way that we offer the sacrifices. No animals, yep. but we offer our bodies ourselves. Our, yep. Our, our deeds to Him. Yep. So that's a helpful
0: picture. Yeah, it is. It it is helpful, um, <clears throat> and it, it, it's encouraging too. What was the verse
1: you had before? This
0: uh, Romans. <clears throat> Thank you. No problem. Twelve one. Any other thoughts? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, not like Right. Yeah, absolutely. You tasted that the Lord is good. Absolutely. Yep. All right, so let's, uh, let's keep pressing through. Um, verses 6 to 8. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. So verse 6 here begins with um, a word in Greek that's usually translated, because so the text cited here is from isaiah 28 16 Um, and in context isaiah 28 is a message of judgment on ephraim for their disobedience and unbelief so what isaiah emphasized throughout the book comes to the forefront here and what is that that those who trust in the lord will escape judgment those who do not trust in him will perish but those who do put their faith in him will triumph. Now, Peter and Paul both see this text as fulfilled in Christ, this Isaiah 28, 16 text, they see it as fulfilled in Christ. God has appointed Christ as a stone in Zion. He is God's elect and honored cornerstone. So the entire building as, as the church, it takes its shape from him. The Old Testament repeats this term, these two terms, chosen and precious, or honored, which we see in verse 4 and 6. That's, that's a common thing in Isaiah. Now, there are interpretations that see a cornerstone as referring to the top stone of the building. Um, but the fact that the stone is a stone of stumbling, which we see in verse 8, shows that the stone is on the ground because they stumble over it. So in other words, it's a foundation stone, okay? So the reference to uh, believing here. Um, believing in him at the end of verse 6 restates the idea of coming to him, which we've seen in the past here. So what Peter's emphasizing and pointing back to Isaiah 28, 16 is that the one who believes in Christ will never be put to shame, okay? So like I said, it's a lot of Old Testament references, so we'll sort of be jumping back and forth. But um, he's pulling out themes in the Old Testament and applying them to the church and saying, look at this, this is that. That is this, okay? <clears throat> so Peter's, and pointing back to Isaiah 28, is emphasizing Christ, and that the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So just as Christ is chosen and honored, one of, <clears throat> one of God's uh, special and beloved, um, we see this at his resurrection, so are believers, which will be vindicated on the last day. So what's true of Christ is also true of his people. The believers won't experience the turning of God away from them, but they'll experience the approval of God and the glory of that approval, which is amazing. <laughs> I know I'm going through this fast, but I wish I could just stop and That's, that's huge. We are approved by God and not turned away. He doesn't stiff arm us. Uh, in Christ, we have his approval. It's, it, that's, that's amazing. Um, So we'll be honored um, and we will never be put to shame. Okay. Verse seven. And so the honor is for you who believe. Again, honor here is final vindication. Just as Christ was honored by the father at his resurrection, so those who trust in him will be honored on the last day, even though they suffer now. Notice also that Peter uses uh, the verb for believing twice in the last two verses. believing in him or believes in him. This shows us, again, that the emphasis is on faith and that belief should be seen in terms of trusting God, not just faithfulness. He's not necessarily pulling out, be faithful. He's laying out this contrast here. The one who believes, honor. And the one who does not believe, consequences for that disbelief. And those consequences are serious and eternal. Why? Again, because the stone has been disregarded by the builders, and that stone is Christ himself, okay? It's Christ himself. I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I want to sound how Peter sounds when he talks about it. So that's what I'm going to do, all right? <clears throat> so as mentioned before, the this this stone being uh, rejected most likely refers to the resurrection of Christ, and this is where God vindicates him. So Peter, again, is quoting from Psalm 118.22 in verse 7 here. And it's interesting to note that in Psalm 118, in its original context, it describes the return of the king to the temple to give thanks after his victory over his enemies. So the stone rejected in the historical context would be the Davidic king, and the builders were the foreign nations that rejected the rule of the anointed kings of Israel. That's very interesting. But both Peter and Jesus in Matthew 21 and in Acts 4 applied this psalm in the way that may surprise us. The builders who reject the anointed king here are not the foreigners, but the religious leaders of Israel. So the religious leaders believe that they are building God's temple, God's structure, but they've actually rejected the foundation cornerstone of the entire structure. Man, he's, he's pulling the Old Testament into the new and saying this is what it means. We read the old in light of the new, right? Um, there's a term, well, I'll talk about that later. Um, okay, so again, that is this, this is that, right? So he's reading this in light of these religious leaders and their rejection of the Messiah. So here's the connection. He's saying by doing this, they're responding like the pagan nations in David's day and have assured their own judgment. As those nations rejected God's king, so these religious leaders are doing the same of Christ and rejecting the chief cornerstone, and their judgment is secure and sure because of it. Again, the idea here is that God has vindicated Christ by the resurrection as the cornerstone, and all who disbelieve in him will face judgment. Okay? Oh, so much on that, but I got to keep going. Verse 8 continues with the thought of verse 7. The stone that sits at the head of the corner corner is the one that the disbelieving stumbles and falls over. Um, Here, Peter is quoting Isaiah 8.14. Point back again. In the context of Isaiah 8, Israel and Judah are called upon to fear and trust the Lord rather than fearing other nations. So it's likely he saw this as relevant because the churches in Asia Minor were tempted to fear those who mistreated and persecuted them. Anyway, uh, Peter then explained why it is that they stumble and fall over the cornerstone. They fall because they disobey the message. The message, uh, logos here, is the gospel, and it's the same word God uses as a seed to beget new life. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we looked at uh, chapter 1, verse 23. But you also see it in chapter 3, verse 1, um, which says, uh, I'll just read it for you. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. If some who do not obey the word. Um, All right, so... they actually, in rejecting uh, the message, they actually reject Christ and their disobedience of the word. Um, again, the use of disobey the word in 3.1 and uh, do not obey the gospel in chapter 4, verse 17 suggests that the word in our context here in verse 8 should be understood as a rejection of the gospel message. All right? And I'm going to read these just for the sake of time. Um, I'm going to read 4, 417, try and bring this out a little bit. Uh, again, so I'm emphasizing the word, the message. In uh, 1 Peter 417, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Right? I think those are all the same, obeying the gospel, obeying the word, obeying the message, um, obeying Christ. Right. Um, all right, so moving on. Uh, then Peter adds um, this interesting statement, which we'll talk about a bit. Um, they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. So that probably rubs some of us the wrong way, but hopefully we'll, we'll talk about it and hopefully bring bring clarity. Um, so the Greek verb here, uh, tithemi, often refers to what God has appointed to happen. So as they were destined uh, to to do. That word usually refers to what God has appointed to happen. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed to by his own authority. Same word, destined, same word. Acts 13, 47, for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you. A light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Same word, tithimi. Um 1 Thessalonians 5 9. For God has not destined Timothy us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, we could spend a lot of time on this because <laughs> it's a lot has to be, to be brought out there, and um, we have to understand that in this context. Um, but <clears throat> Some, I'll sort of lay out the other, other argument here, some would, regard, some would argue that what Peter meant in saying this is that God just appointed that those who disobeyed the message of the gospel would stumble. But we have to settle ourselves in the sovereignty of God again here um, and say that, wait a minute. I think I'm missing a page. This is very important. I can't miss a page. I'm not missing a page. Okay. Okay. Um, God is infinitely wise and allows the Bible, we have to allow the Bible to speak for itself. God has not only appointed that those who disobey the word would stumble and fall. He has determined that they would disbelieve and stumble. I'm not saying <laughs> we believe in double predestination. Don't go there. All right? And for those who don't go there. Um, but I'll explain it a little more. Um, that, that's not what I'm saying. He's but we're saying that he's determined um, that they would uh, disbelieve and stumble. And this idea of calamity comes from God, coming that God is over all things. Calamity and well-being is an idea that's common in the Old Testament, right? So we go where the Bible goes again. It is not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Amos 3.6. Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? He's asking a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. Isaiah 45:7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I've written on this in poem fashion. <laughs> if you'd like to hear, it, you can talk to me later. Um, it's one of my favorite verses. It's it's super encouraging and comforting to see this. So if we step back and look at all of Scripture, it leads us to the conclusion that, again, God is sovereignly in control of all things, from the decision of the king to the throw of the dice. He's sitting on his high and holy throne. Though we know that this is true, it sometimes is extremely difficult to rest in it. Um, and even more difficult to understand it. God's ways are higher. He's infinitely wise. We are finite in our thinking and limited. We don't know what will happen 10 seconds from now. That's how weak and finite we are. But God is infinitely wise and rules all things. And it can be hard to rest in God's sovereignty in those times when it is, when when tragedy hits. We've all been in those situations when we ourselves stiff-arm the truth of God's word Uh, that he is sovereign because of an overwhelming pain or hurt or confusion. I've been there. It is not a temptation that's uncommon to men. Uh, But the scriptures call us back to that truth that God is wise and good, just and holy. Okay? And we have to rest there. And even the most cruel and horrible act in history, which is what? The crucifixion of Christ even the most cruel and horrible act in history was predestined by God. Okay? Ah, 10 minutes. Ah, uh, so much. Um, all right, we're going to go to it anyway because it's important. Turn to Acts 2.23. Um, and then probably on, on that same page, you'll see Acts 4.27. So Acts 2.23. That's Acts 2.23. And then I'm I'm going to read Acts 4, 27 and 28. All right, 2.23. Um, I'll start. I'll start back at 22. Men of Israel, hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4, 27 to 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ was a horrific thing. And the Lord, it says here by the Spirit writing through Luke, he predestined it to take place. We have to rest there. We have to. We really don't have another choice. Our hearts will not be content in other solutions apart from the Lord has done this. Um, I can say more about that, but I have to I have to go on. Um, It's interesting to see here that Peter says um, in the same verse back in Acts, back in verse 23 of Acts 2, that you crucified and killed Jesus. Um, As sure as we know that God is ruling all things and predestined this to happen, we know that human beings are never exempt from their responsibilities. Never. Matter of fact, the cross of Christ proves that. He doesn't sweep sin under a rug. He addresses it, and he has addressed it most Uh, fiercely and most justly in the cross of Christ, and most lovingly in the cross of Christ. So Peter here seems to conclude that in the killing of Christ, these men carried out their own desires. They weren't forced to crucify Christ against their wills. Listen, in putting Christ to death, they did exactly what they wanted to do. What they wanted to do. In the same way, Peter calls out those who stumble over Christ, the cornerstone, for their unbelief and disobedience. We're not off the hook because God is sovereign. All right, Peter doesn't argue that man's unbelief is free from any guilt because it was predestined. He lays out the common theme in Scripture that human beings are responsible for their sin and sin willingly, and yet God controls all events in history. (sighs) Okay. So we can't put God on trial. We shouldn't, we can't, it is sinful to do so. But we rest in him, and we trust him. Um, while at the same time, we admit that there is mystery here. But we go where the Bible goes, and we stop where the Bible stops, OK? All right, on to the next text here. Um, why do you think Peter emphasizes the theme of God's sovereignty here, specifically in this? OK, so back to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Why do you think he emphasized God's sovereignty here? Um, the other end of this that, is that it has to be extremely comforting towards readers to be assured that the evil in the world is not independent of God's control. So no slanderous word comes out of the mouth of the unbeliever against the Christian without God orchestrating and causing it to be. The trigger is not pulled um, when the Christian is killed without God allowing the muscles and the trigger finger to function as they do. The rope is not pulled to lift the gate to release the lion to attack and kill the Christians, which happened in our history, without God's allowing that to happen. We gotta go deep to go high to thank God for his mercy. We can't just have a a shallow view of these persecutions and these things. We have to take it where the Bible takes it so that we view God as he ought to be viewed. He is sovereign over all things. Okay? And we rest there. So basically, God still reigns. I know I'm going to front of rabbit hole here, but God still reigns, even over those who oppose him and those who love him. Okay? Verse 9. Jump there real quick. Verse 9 starts with, but, or on the contrary, you are a chosen race. These elect exiles belong to God because they have been elected or chosen by him. Peter starts this book off with election and, uh, to strengthen his pilgrims, God's pilgrims, and he returns here. Um, he then brings out Exodus 19:6, <clears throat> which says, And you shall be to me uh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he pulls out this terminology in Peter here, um, and it's the exact same words we see in Exodus. In Exodus, uh, that title applied to Israel, those whom God put into place um, when when he puts into place this covenant at Mount Sinai. Israel's priesthood meant that they were to sort of mirror to the nations the glory of Yahweh so that all nations would see that God that no god, lowercase g, rivals the Lord. Unfortunately, Israel mainly failed at this, and the Assyrian and Babylon exiles uh, proved this. They were exiled because they failed to keep God's law. Jesus Christ, the true Israel and son of God, is the only one to completely obey God's mandate and is thus the true priest of God. Now, in him, God's kingdom of priests consists of the church of Jesus Christ, the true Israelite who was circumcised of the heart. So it, too, is to mediate God's blessing to the nations. And how do they do that? By proclaiming the gospel. Uh, Priests, this is our corporate identity, and the gospel is our unwavering message. Uh, Peter quotes uh, Exodus 19.6. Again, we identify the church as a holy nation. The church of Jesus is a people now set apart for the Lord, enjoying his special presence and favor in this world, but set apart from this world. These are the people belonging to God, a people of his own possession. Right? So that term is actually used in Malachi 3.17, uh, which I don't have here. Um, and it's used of believers who respond to the Lord's rebuke and live righteously. And so in contrast to the wicked who do not obey, They are his possession, his special people. Um, So here there's this tie to Isaiah 43, 21, which I'll bring up quick. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that he might declare my praise. The verb uh, for I form for myself here um, in verse 21 of Isaiah Is the verbal form of the noun possession all right just a technical real quick Uh, that is the verbal form of the noun possession in our text so again the privileges belonging to Israel now belong to the church of Jesus Christ and all those Jews and Gentiles who belong to the true Israel are now part of the new people of God okay so what is the purpose of this new people of God God has chosen them as a people, established them as a royal priesthood, appointed them as a holy nation um, to be spe- his special possession, but why? And it's clear here that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are called to proclaim. It's simple. Um, you see that, again, this allusion to Isaiah um, 43 43:21, where it says god formed israel for himself so that they might declare his praises people whom i formed for myself that they might declare my praise peter's just bringing out the old testament bringing it out this is that that is this this is the fulfillment of that all right that they might declare my praise so god's ultimate purpose and everything he does is designed to bring him praise to bring him glory of course So proclaiming God's excellencies includes both worship and evangelism, spreading the good news of God's salvation to all his peoples. Again, um, we are called out of darkness. That's what they're proclaiming, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, And this does remind us a lot of Genesis 1, where God speaks of his word. He speaks and light becomes a reality and it pushes back darkness. I mean, Paul sort of paints this same picture when he talks about conversion in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where God shines in the hearts of his people to give them the light, of the knowledge of his glory through Christ. This calling described in verse 9 of 1 Peter is also effectual. Just as God's word creates light, so God's call creates faith. Calling here is not just an invitation. It actually does something. What God speaks becomes a reality. The beauty and glory of the new life is conveyed by the image of light in contrast to darkness. So it makes sense that Peter says that it is marvelous. And if you have seen that light, you know how marvelous it is, right? All right, any thoughts before I jump to verse 10 here, our last verse? I know I'm saying a lot, and I'm trying to get it all in. It's a lot here. And it is a lot here. Um but in verse eight oh, you were talking about
1: the uh that they were destined to do, and it be understood that it's like the law of agriculture, but you
0: should
1: weak so In the sense that if you disobey the word, you're destined to suffer. Meat.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that there's definitely some a, a truth in that. Any rejection of Christ and his word, um you, you've already sealed your faith, so to speak. Um, Jesus, I was thinking about him and talking to the um, Pharisees and their, their rejection of Him, and where I'm going, you will not come, um, but you will die in your sins." He doesn't sort of mince words with them. It's pretty clear. You reject me as the Messiah. You're, it, 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 it's sealed. Um, and that, that's not to say that God can't change the, the heart and heart of someone we know and are praying for. But he's saying what's being said is that your rejection, in your action of rejection, your heart and your actions, you are continu- you're showing that one, you want you, you don't want to have anything to do with Christ. And as R- R- Rabbi Zachariah said, if those who in this life want nothing to do with Christ will spend their eternity in that state. Um, and yeah, so it's very it's, it's very clear there. Um hey, back to talk about responsibility and slavery? Absolutely. Yeah, it's back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, yeah, they're not, they're not separate. Um, like I mentioned, if Pharaoh was sinning and purposeful in his sin against the Lord. Yet, Bible's clear, God hardened his heart. Um, again there, there's mystery there, but the Bible lays it out pretty plain for us um, man is responsible for their sins
1: yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah any other thoughts?
1: Nope I sorry. Um, I've I've heard of it as being judgment, but that you know, the hardest part is a judgment for their similarity. Like how accurate is
0: that? The, is is it judgment for are you talking about in this context or generally? In general,
1: like like Pharaoh, you know, God's hardening of him was judgment of his yeah. sinfulness or maybe yeah. his original sin that we're judged for. Romans, um,
0: yeah. Romans, yeah. I, I think about Romans um, when there is this rejection. There's this. I don't want the God on the throne. I want an idol. I want an image made with hands. I want my desires on the throne. God turns them over to their lusts. Um, so yeah, there is, th- th- that's a reality as well, that there is, God can turn you over to what you want, right? Even in that, you see that he's not giving you to something and saying, go get it. He's saying, no, this is what you want. There you go. And it's actually your own, dis- you implode, right? It, it's your own destruction and, get, and getting what you want. So, yeah, yeah. All right, sorry, one more verse, 10, 15. Uh, two, two minutes, all right? All right, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, verse 10 goes right back to the affirmation that these elect exiles are God's people, Peter again points back and uses the wording of Hosea 223. In Hosea 223, Israel is disclaimed from being God's people because of their sin, but God makes this pledge that they'll have, that he'll have mercy on them and form them again as his people. I mean, this is the experience of those uh, Gentiles in, in this persecuted church living in this dark time. They are identified as now God's people, although they lived in darkness and rejected the Lord. And as I said earlier, that's a miraculous thing. They didn't deserve inclusion into God's people, but they have now received mercy and rejoice at their inclusion. Do we rejoice at our inclusion into God's family? We should. The result of salvation is the proclamation of his excellencies. That should be the natural heart of Uh, position before God, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Um, More can be said about that, but uh, for the sake of time, uh, I'll close with this. The same message of mercy that uh, Peter opened this letter with in chapter 1, verse 3, is the same message he closes the section with in chapter 2, verse 10. Peter reminds them that they are beneficiaries of God's grace and that the foundation of their obedience to God's commands comes through God's mercy in Christ and praise God for that. All right. All right, that's that's what I got for you guys. <clears throat>